Okay, let's turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the best way. When, instead of saying, I'll pray for you, when somebody says, pray for me, do it right then so you don't have to be a liar. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 15. <laughs> Hi. Huh? We're not praying for that. <laughs> We're going to keep that one under wraps. Good to see you, Nancy. Please keep an eye on him. He's, he's, he's out of control lately. <laughs> okay. First Corinthians 15, 24. Just to pick up some slack. And we're going to get to our passage tonight. Fifteen twenty-eight is the main thing that we're after. The message will be called God will be, emphasis on will be, all in all. Emphasizing the assurance of that fact. A few moments of silent preparation. Father, thanks for this opportunity. You keep multiplying these opportunities in your omnipotent grace. And your unconditional love toward us in Christ Jesus. We pray that your son will be manifested in a way that will bring you honor and glory. That he will be manifested by means of the spirit and the word in a way that edifies, strengthens, fortifies, and adds grace to all of us in our weakness. For we ask this in his name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, where we want to pick up tonight just to get some context. Our passage has been 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. But we have been exploring and reflecting on the context all the way back to verse 1. So lots on resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, we're hitting the most, well, let's just say the furthermost or the outermost reach of eschatology in the scripture. This is the furthest reach of the promise of God as to our future. It says, then the telos, telos is a word that's used often in the scriptures. It means the end, but it also means the goal. So it's got kind of a dual meaning, end, goal. And it can mean one or the other. Sometimes it tends toward end. Sometimes it tends toward goal. Christ himself called himself the telos, in Revelation twenty two thirteen, toward the telos of the book of Revelation, he said, I am the beginning and the end, the arche, which is the beginning, arche, and the telos. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, arche, LXX, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, all things are made, do, made new, the creation of all things made new in Christ. The original creation and the restored creation will find their end or goal in Christ. Telos is also found in Romans 10.4, the big 10.4 of Romans. He is the end of the lawful righteousness or the law as a means of deliverance. Christ is. But here... It is a division of resurrection. There is one resurrection. And Jesus Christ is the first fruits. And so we could have kind of a standard or a flag for each division. We have the aparche division. Aparche is first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, if, you, if you're there in that passage. The aparche division. Christ is the first fruits. Now, there's a curious thing about that. And we're going to hit this when we get to Romans 11 fairly in the not-too-distant future. And I, knew, I do have 738 ready for your edification soon, too. But in Romans 11:16 it says, If the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch of dough is holy. Or we could apply it this way. If the first fruits is holy, then so is the universal harvest. First fruits, by its very nature, this word apake in the Greek is as translated as first fruits, by its very nature, 
Christ is the aparche. He is the first fruits. He is holy. If he's holy, then the whole universal harvest is holy by his. That's why the scripture says it is God's doing that he has made him to be for us holiness or sanctification. That's coming up pretty soon, too. So the aparche division is Christ himself, Christos, Christos. The next division is the parousia division, those who belong to him at his coming, at the parousia. Those are people who are either alive and remain at his coming or those who have died in him and they will be brought into glory with him. The parousia division, in other words, constitutes those who will have embraced the divine deliverance through faith in this life and have, will have been justified in this life. And then there is the telos division. Then comes the telos. And if you put it in the context here, telos is also a division. As 1 Timothy 4.10 says, God is the Savior of all humankind, especially those who believe. It doesn't say exclusively those who believe, but especially those who believe. The especially those who believe could correlate with the parousia division of the resurrection, but he is the Savior of all mankind, so the rest we would find in the telos division. Jesus Christ himself comprises, embraces all of these divisions. And again, if you look at Romans eleven sixteen in principle, if the first fruits is holy, and he is, then the whole batch, or in this case, the whole harvest is holy, which is as much as saying that the universal resurrection in Christ is holy because of him. His salvation is sanctification for all. So then the telos division. And the, the point being made here is that the telos division will be resurrected to life when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. So then the end, the telos, that's the division of resurrection, when he, the Son, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he, the Father, will have abolished all rule and every holder of authority and power in opposition to God's all-powerful grace. There will be then the abolition or the doing away with, the rendering totally hors de combat, totally ineffective, all opposing powers. That includes sin and that includes the flesh, that includes the law, the Torah, as it has been hijacked by the sin, by man's sin, and all powers, including principalities and powers who hold sway over humankind, every holder of authority in human authority, political authority, oppressive human authorities, all of it will be done away. Anything that's in opposition to God's all-powerful grace. This is the culmination of an act of God of divine deliverance. An act of de divine deliverance that's beyond the creature's control and requires no cooperation of the creature. Thank you very much, God would say. Salvation is an act of God that requires no help, no cooperation from the creature. So Jesus Christ is not only the beginning, hey, RK, but he's also the end, Genesis 1-1, Revelation 22-13. His grace embraces the telos division of the bodily resurrection as he embraces those who belong to him by believing into him, the parousia division. This belongs to a systematic theology category called ecclesiology which for the 21st century needs to be radically altered from theologies from before, in which the church, in the true ecclesiology, the church is merely a prolepsis of a universal humanity. It isn't the only elect, the only elect section of humanity. It is a kind of firstfruits, like Jesus Christ is in James 1.18, a kind of firstfruits, which means the beginning of a universal harvest. 
The church, which is the body of Christ now, is limited to those who believe. The, the body of Christ, however, at this point in the eschatology, the body of Christ will be all of humankind that ever lived. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Not only all humanity, but if you look at First Timothy, and we're going to be getting into the so-called pastoral epistles pretty soon, sooner than I thought. First Timothy 6.13, Paul charges Timothy... And he says, in the presence of God, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, tapanta, who gives life to all things. The same word, zoa poieo, for giving of life that is given to all humankind in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, is given to all beings, all that has being, all things, tapanta, in 1 Timothy 6.13. So, Jesus Christ's grace embraces the telos division of the bodily resurrection. Just as he embraces those who belong to him by believing into him. That's the parousia division. Christ is the aparche division. Almost looks like Apache, but take the R, add the R. Aparche Division, Christ himself, personally, corporeally. As the first fruits, he is in the first division of a resurrection that is universal. Christ is the aparche division. If the first fruits is holy, I would add, in Romans eleven sixteen, with a reference to Numbers 15, 17 to 21, that's again Romans eleven sixteen, with a reference to Numbers fifteen seventeen to twenty one, the meal offering. If the first fruits is holy, then the whole harvest is holy, just as the first fruits of the meal offering is holy, and so the whole batch is holy. The whole idea here is if the first to raise from the dead, the first fruits, Jesus Christ is considered holy by God, then so is the universal harvest that follows. Holy. We're looking here then at the fruits of a divine action of salvation in which God acts to save and he requires no creaturely cooperation. And we'll see that the difference between those who believe that they have a capacity for redemption and those that don't. I believe that no human being has a capacity in them to be redeemed. They're not redeemable in themselves. Only because of God are we redeemable. Only because of Christ are we redeemable. There is in Christianity in America, a vast majority of Christians are actually Gnostics, and they are rejectors of the cross of Christ. Partly because we live in a comfortable culture, partly because we live in a prosperous culture, partly because theology in America largely is a triumphal one. It's about how God wants to bless you and make you feel good and make you blessed in all quarters of your life so that he will preserve you from suffering. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. That's Christianity minus the cross. And that's a heartbreak It's a heartbreak. Christianity, contrary to Gnosticism. The majority of Christendom is Gnostic today in America. And I'll show you how that is provable in the scriptures before too very long. Now, we're going to be more into this Romans 11 idea and better call Paul down in the future, so I'm going to leave it for now. But the point is, Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. He both died and came to life again from the dead, that he might be the Lord of the living and the dead. This, in Romans 14.9, is a phenomenal declaration, that he is Lord of the living and the dead. As he said to John on the Isle of Patmos, Stop fearing, John. I have the keys of death and of Hades. I was dead myself. 
and look at me now, I'm alive to the everlasting ages to come. So Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. That means he's the Lord of those who are still dead in sins in Ephesians 2.1 and 2.5. It means that he is the Lord as those who are dead in graves. And he's also Lord of those who have been made alive with him in this life. That's you. I'm speaking to the majority of you as those who have been made alive with him in this life, right in the midst of your mortal life. He is also Lord of those who are with him, having fallen asleep in him or died in him. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must, very strong word here, he absolutely must, we could say, it's the word dei, D-E-I, dei, D-E-I. He must reign or rule as king. He must because he is, in Psalm 110.1, this is the allusion, he is David's Lord. He is Yahweh the Lord. And David, being a prophet as well as a patriarch, was called into the secret council of God, and he saw and heard. He heard the voice of Yahweh the Father say to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. He, Jesus, must reign because he is that one to whom the Father said, sit at my right hand. He is now presently seated, enthroned as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world at the right of God the Father. Not on a separate throne, but on the Father's throne next to the Father. Revelation 3.21, we learned that. So he must rule as king. He's reigning now. He's not waiting to reign. He's reigning now. His rule is now. You happen to be those among those who have been conquered by him. And our whole spiritual lives are God getting more and more a grasp on us not us getting more and more grasp on him. The Lord Jesus Christ getting more and more of a grasp on us. And that's what Romans 6.11 all the way through Romans 8.39 teaches. For he must rule as king until the time when he, now we have here the father, places all the enemies under his, the son's feet. Remember, David said the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, Yahweh the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make, the Father makes all the enemies come under the Son's, now we understand, nail-scarred feet. So Christ must reign as king until the time when he, the Father, places all the enemies under his, the Son's feet. The last enemy, here it doesn't say this enemy submits. The last enemy doesn't submit in one sense. It's abolished utterly. It's annihilated. The only doctrine of annihilation that the scripture supports is not the annihilation of the wicked or of people or of creatures, but the annihilation of death itself. And that's why the last enemy is distinguished from all the other enemies who submit to him. The last enemy which will be brought to nothing. So I translate it this way. The last enemy, comma, which will be brought to nothing or annihilated, comma, is death. So in verse 27, Paul goes brilliantly from Psalm 110.1, which has a futuristic twinge to it, to... Psalm 8, 5 through 7, in which he talks about the Son of Man already having everything under him. So there's a now and not yet situation created here that's ingenious by the Apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit. So, for you see, quote, he has put all things under his feet. Now he's quoting from Psalm 8, 5 through 7. 
But when it says everything, this is what we made clear from last week. Everything means everything. And I had its bone to pick with my dear old former mentor, J. Vernon McGee, mentor by books, not face-to-face. But when it says everything, that's our famous word, panta. That's all things without exception. That's all beings. Whether the beings are volitional creatures or just creation in general. So when it says everything is subjected under him, it is obvious that the one who has subjected everything to him is the only exception. The only exception. So Paul's making it very clear. This is everything in created reality because the only exception of not being, the only exception to all things being under his feet, the only one that's not under his feet is God the Father who is distinguished from all creation. So all creation is ultimately put under his feet and submitted to the Father along with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ submits all of creation in all of its times, and that includes all of humanity, to the Father. Not so that the Father can punish half of them, but so that God can be all in all of them. And that's what 1528 is all about. We've been trying to approach it carefully, contextually, very carefully all along the way. Now we start in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 28. And I started to exegete this in my study, and I got this far. I got to the first two words, because it says de, which can be but, but it can be also now. He's just continuing the, to the final end of this eschatological treatise. And then he says, hotan, de hotan. And that would look like this if you wrote it in English characters. Hotan. Accent there, long O. Hotan. Now when, not if, when. It's a temporal particle, so it means at the time that. It's a contraction of the word hota plus the particle on. Hotan. It means when. But it has an indefinite meaning sometimes. But here's where a lot of translators have gotten off the mark here and a lot of interpreters. It doesn't, it's not indefinite in terms of the certainty of this coming event, which is the restoration of all things and the submission of all things to the Father so that God can be all in all. The uncertainty is not with regard to the event itself, but the when of it. The day and the hour of it, as Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty six on another occasion, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son of Man, only the Father, only the exception to everything under his feet knows this day or the hour. As Acts 1 says, only the Father has these things, has the dates in his calendar. So, People have seen an iffiness here, and they've attributed it to the event itself. Well, it means that the event itself is not certain. No, it doesn't. The event itself of God becoming all in all is absolutely certain. It's a prophecy of the living word. God's already present to that reality. God is already, if he's omnipresent, and he is, he's already present to the future. And so it's so certain that it is almost indescribably certain. So the only uncertainty here is from the human standpoint, including Paul's, about the day or the hour, as it were. In this Septuagint, this temporal particle, hotan, is used in ways, and I decided to take a little side tour because why not? It's still scripture. Genesis chapter 40 and verse 14, we have the word hotan again, when, meaning not if, but when, indicating a certain event. In the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of Genesis 40:14, this will help us in interpreting the word hotan in 1 Corinthians 15:28. There, Joseph, the son of Jacob, not Joseph, the husband of Mary, but Joseph, 
who was imprisoned with the Pharaoh's sommelier, sommelier or wine taster. Now, the Pharaoh's wine taster he selected the wine. He's the sommelier. That's what they call him in restaurants. But he was also the wine taster, which means he would taste it first because if there was deadly poison in it, he'd drop over dead. So, the, but he's, so they were, he was a wine steward. He was in prison with Joseph, who was wrongfully imprisoned because he did not try to seduce or rape Potiphar's wife as she accused him. So he was sent to prison for something he didn't do. So that kind of suffering is not a suffering from which Christians need to be exempt. See, the Gnostic Christians don't want Christians to suffer that way. Oh, no. So, Joseph was unlawfully or unrighteously imprisoned. The sommelier had a dream. Joseph interpreted the dream. That was part of his charisma as a prophet at that time. And he told this servant of Pharaoh that he would be restored by Pharaoh to his former position. It's very good news. That's what your dream means. You're going to be restored to your former position. And so when you get to the Pharaoh, please put in a word for me, which, of course, the guy forgot to do. But that's, Christians aren't exempt from that kind of suffering either. The restoration was a certainty. And in fact, it did occur in Genesis forty twenty one, as Joseph, a prophet as well as a patriarch, had predicted. So look at verse twenty or forty fourteen. It says, But when Hotan, Genesis forty fourteen, when all goes well for you, it's gonna it's gonna take that as a word from the Lord for you. But when all goes well for you, he doesn't say if. He's certain all things are going to go well because God gave him the interpretation of the dream. When all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But please, the thing I want you to notice is just the word hotan. It appears in the Greek text just like it does in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. In this case, the when, hotan, was not only certain in terms of the fact of its occurrence, but in this case, it was even certain as to the day. Yet three days and three days, this is going to happen for you. All is going to go well for you. And it did. 40, 13 says so. The verse just before that. In just three days, So there's an example of Hotan. There's no doubt, no indefiniteness, no lack of certitude and certainty and absolute assurance about things going well for this man. And so there's no iffiness about it. Here's another one. Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. Even more importantly, there Yahweh is the speaker. I hope you get some of the subtle nuances of what the Holy Spirit's teaching with this tonight because from my standpoint, it's going to look like I'm crazy the next few things I say. It's going to look like I'm nuts, which isn't far from the reality, but that's something for others to decide, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So consider 2 Corinthians 5.13 when Paul said, put up with me just for a little while in my Madness. I'm out of my mind. Just gave you time to turn there. Now, in Exodus 3.21, Yahweh, who had introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am what I am, or I am that I am, which the Christian or the complete Jewish Bible says also means I will be what I will be. There's also a nuance here in God's name, I am that I am, is I will become what you need me to be. Do you need me to be your salvation? I'll become that. Do you need me to become flesh? I'll become flesh for you. Do you need me 
to become your sin. I will. So the I am that I am, Yahweh, predicts the exodus. His prediction to Moses is an act. You know what the exodus means? A divinely enacted liberation of an enslaved people who have nothing to do with it. They have no cooperation they can lend to this divine action. And therefore, it's a beautiful picture of a universal exodus, a divine act of deliverance for all humankind and all of the screaming creation in Romans eight nineteen to 23. They are, all creation is groaning in the travail of childbirth, which means more than groaning. It probably means screaming. And that's why when Jesus screamed from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it is my contention that he was there identifying with the desperate creation, identifying with the screaming creation. Because in that, the father did not forsake his son in that sense. But the sense that the creation has is that God has forsaken it. And it's that identification that Jesus had with the screaming creation caused him to scream with creation. Now even the Holy Spirit groans within us. He groans within us. And we groan with all creation. It's an anticipation. It's part of our Christian experience, this painful almost intensity of expectation not yet fulfilled but expected to be fulfilled. That's part of our Christian experience. It's not a triumphal thing where it's all about us reigning, as Paul said to the Corinthians. They were enthusiasts. They were the spiritual giants of their time. Paul was very sarcastic with them in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I see that you're already reigning on thrones, but I'm just the court jester. I'm just a fool for Christ. Us apostles, are we were just slated to be the last. We're the ones in the arena that go to the Caesar and said, we who are about to die salute you. We are the offscouring and the scum of the earth. That's what we are. But you, oh, you're kings. You're royalty. You're royals. That's to put it in the way the millennials will understand. We are royals. Yeah, you're royal something. I'll tell you that right now. Now then, not all, I'm not speaking to all millennials, just a hefty percentage of them. So he says, Yahweh speaking now. And since God cannot lie when he says when, the people of Israel are going. Look at Exodus 3.21. And I will give this people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, when you go, oh, you're going. There's no if about this. There's no indefiniteness about this. When you go. He doesn't say what day or hour, but they're going. You will not go empty-handed. Now, this reaches out way into Romans 8. This is one of the things I'm saying as a crazy man. By this declaration of Yahweh, I'm reminded that, as the Scripture says, having not spared his son, just before they head out and they take everything from the Egyptians, not, it's not really a spoil. The Egyptians are giving it to them. Please go and here, take my candelabra with you. Please go and take my... Big screen TV, please go and take all my techie stuff with you, please. And it says, by the time Pharaoh wants to send you out, he's going to drive you out. Please go. This is like saying God who didn't spare his son, which is typified by the lamb who was slaughtered and eaten before that deliverance. How shall he not freely give you everything now? And that's illustrated by the lamb that was slain. The Passover happened. They left the next day, and they took unspeakable wealth with them. Enough wealth that they could build a multi-trillion dollar tabernacle. So, 
by this declaration, I was sort of reminded of that today. God is now free to give us all things, which is the universe itself. However, the point for our interpretation, and that's the theological functional specialty we're working on tonight, interpretation, there is nothing uncertain about their going. When you go, it's not if they go, but when they go. The liberation of the people of Yahweh from slavery in Egypt was a certainty at the burning bush when God encountered Moses. The universal exodus is also a prophesied certainty, including the passage in our present reflection. Yahweh here, then, is not definite about a day or an hour. In other words, he doesn't say it's going to happen on Tuesday, May 5th, or whatever in the year of so-and-so. He knows what day it'll be. But the certainty is related to the event itself. So Yahweh is not definite about a day or an hour, but very definite about the fact of the upcoming divine liberation of his people, something that he enacts without cooperation, certainly without cooperation from Pharaoh, certainly not cooperation of Egypt, certainly not the cooperation of Israel, not the cooperation of Moses even. God enacts this deliverance. But by the time it happens... Pharaoh is all cooperative, at least for a while. Then he decides, wait a minute, we just lost all our slaves. Let's go back and get them. Let's get them. Let's hunt them down. And, of course, that's when the Red Sea happened, and all of Pharaoh's armies tried to do what God did, let the people of Israel pass over something that he did, the splitting of the Red Sea. And it said the Egyptian armies tried to do the same thing with their military might. They tried to cross over. But then God said, well, all my people are crossed, so I think I'll just close that up now. So, that's a judgment that happened in history. It does not indicate the eternal destiny of Pharaoh's armies. I will give this people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go out empty-handed. Now, therefore, the universal exodus is also a prophesied certainty. So, on the other hand, the day or the hour are uncertain to us, though not to the Father. As Isaiah 46, 10 to 11 says, and I'll quote this, I declare the end from the beginning, says Yahweh, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place. And I will do all my will. Tell us, what is your will? That all men would be saved, all human beings be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth, capital T-R-U-T-H, the truth embodied in Jesus. I will do all my will. Yes, I have spoken, he says in 11b, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. The big difference between God and mankind. He plans and he does. Man plans and sometimes he does. And also Numbers 23:19, God is not a man who lies or a mere mortal man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? Rhetorical question, absolutely not. He does not speak and not do. One more example. This is what we call exegesis. I haven't done a lot of that lately, at least in front of you. I'm doing it in front of you tonight. But Exodus 11.1, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When, Hotan, he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. 
He'll not only say, oh, I guess you can go. He'll say, get the hell out of here. And he'll drive them out of there. That's how. So he ends up cooperating. Although his cooperation isn't needed for divine deliverance. So here we have the very definite declaration of Yahweh. He will let you go. When Hotan Pharaoh lets you go, therefore has no ambiguity as to its fact. Though there's nothing in this particular verse that gives an exact day or hour. There was no indefiniteness. Listen carefully to this. Let it be all caps in your brain. There was no indefiniteness about the upcoming exodus to Yahweh before the fact of it. Even as there is no uncertainty as to the upcoming apocatastasis Pantone, restoration of all things universally, prophesied by God through the mouth of all of his prophets in one way or another, Acts 3.21. And now that includes Paul, who not only is the apostle of Jesus Christ to the pagans and to all the nations, but also a prophet, because this is a prophecy given to him by Yahweh. A.T. Robertson, and I like to look back in my old treasure chest for some of my old mentors. A.T. Robertson was one of my first, again, mentors by writing. He says in his word pictures in the Greek New Testament, which is still, I consider, quite valuable. For, on First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, he says, And when all things have been subjected, and then he has the words, Hotan de hupotage tapanta. That's exactly right. He speaks that the word for submit is the second aorist passive subjunctive of hupotasso, not the perfect tense. And then he says, when the all things are subjected to him, then he understands that a lot of exegetes have had a problem. He said, the aorist subjunctive, which is an iffy mood, has given translators a a deal of needless trouble in this passage. And then he said simply, it's prophecy. After all, of course, that God may be all in all, hina e ho theos panta en passen. Then I like what he concludes in his little exegesis, very brief here, but he says, the final goal of all God's redemptive plans, as Paul has so well said in Romans eleven thirty six, Romans eleven thirty six, Paul ecstatically announces, "For from him and through him and to him are all things." You get these, well, I'd say fundamentalist exegetes and theologians to say things like that. Then they back off from it. There's no backing off from that. That's And then he said precisely this language Paul will use of Christ in Colossians 3.11, where in the body of Christ now, Christ is all and he's in you all. Therefore, no labels work anymore. It's not, hey, there's a slave, there's a freeman, hey, there's a Scythian, and there's a barbarian. Now, those labels are washed off in the bath of regeneration. They're gone in Christ. Christ is all and he's in you all. Now the subjective or subjunctive mood is, quote, the mood of probability expressing a measure of uncertainty. Now let me say that again. This, the subjunctive mood which this verb hupotasso is in, according to Perschbacher, is the mood of probability but expresses a measure of uncertainty. So what translators did and commentators did said, well, there's, it's uncertain that this will happen, that all will be all and all, God will be all and all. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. The subjunctive mood fulfills a very important role here. The only uncertainty here is, to, is as to the exact time 
of the consummation of the instauration, of the total consummation of God's redemptive plan. Here the words of Jesus pertain when he said, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only, the Father only. Matthew twenty four thirty six. Even though Jesus was speaking there, as we've discovered, of prophetic events that would occur before the end of the generation to whom he was speaking, these words also pertain to the final submission of all of created reality, and all the patristic theologians interpreted that universal submission as salvation, as voluntary, and as salvation. These words also then pertain to the final submission of all of created reality and of all beings to God the Father in and by the Son. So we have in 1 Corinthians 15, if I was doing an exegesis in a college, as far as we've gotten tonight is these words. Now when? Then hupatage is the aorist passive subjunctive form of the verb hupatasso. And I'm not going to get into this in great detail because we'll have to do that if we ever go through 1 Corinthians The aorist tense states the simple fact of this universal submission. Again, to which most of the patristic theologians, including Bardason, including Origen, including Evagrius, including Eusebius, and others, believed, and Gregory of Nyssa also, and Gregory Nazianzus all believed, that this voluntary universal submission equals universal salvation. The passive voice means that all things or all beings receive the action of submission by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, as we see in Romans 5.15, by whom all the ungodly are justified. God justifies or sets right the ungodly. God's justice is not to be seen as retribution. God's justice sees what is very wrong. And his justice goes about to set it right. That's why God is called the one who justifies the ungodly. And that is all of humanity outside of Christ, including those who have a pious aura about them. A religious aura. So... It's often the so-called pious that, ex- that really express more of a problem to- against grace than anyone else. The passive voice, again, means that all things or all beings receive the action of submission by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, by whom all the ungodly are justified. Romans 4, 5, Romans 5, 18. Get those verses, understand them. The subjunctive mood does not indicate any uncertainty regarding the event, or any incertitude or lack of assurance on Paul's part. The only indefiniteness here is with regard to the exact when of this event. The passive voice would require the meaning become subject or be subject. So here we have in a rapid fire way in a lightning round kind of exegesis, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now, when everything, tapanta, our famous word, that's everything without exception, is subject to him, then at that time, tot, T-O-T-E, another particle, temporal particle, the son himself will also be subject to him, the father, who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Panta en pasen. Now in closing, as we move to the final part of this message tonight, and excuse me or I apologize that I've been a little exegetical and technical tonight. I'm just trying to do what 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, preaching the word with assurance and in the power of the Holy Spirit but with assurance, to convey assurance to you. It's true, as Alaria Romelli indicated in her famous book on the apocatastasis, at least I'm trying to make it famous, that the language used here is reminiscent of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 9.22. And if you want to turn there, it'd be profitable, because 9.22 is a strange verse. Almost, in fact, every Greek translation that I have immediate access to 
I'm still working on a, I guess, I don't know, a program that's from 2001. So does that mean I'm not up to date with, has there been further technological advances since 2001? But anyways, all of the Greek translations, and I got a lot of them, that I have access to do not translate 1 Corinthians 9.22 in a way that a whole class of Greek translations and the Latin Vulgate and the Syriac Peshito or the Aramaic version of the Bible translates it. In all the translations I have, as well as most of the English translations I have, Paul says, I have become all things to all people in order that I may by all means save some. And the word is tinas, some. But there's a whole class of Greek manuscripts. And along with that, the Syriac Peshito, which is a, an Aramaic translation of the New Testament, and along with that, the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate isn't good on a lot of stuff, especially as Augustine used it, but it's also good on a lot of stuff. They use the word omnis, which is all. And tinas is not tinas in this other class of Greek, but pantas. So Paul's saying, I have become all things to all people in order that by all means I might save them all. Now, what if that's not Paul speaking? What if that's Paul the prophet or the Yahweh speaking through him? The I am that I am. I will be what you need me to be. I will become what you need me to become. And that's why many times the Holy Spirit is referred to in the feminine because what is needed sometimes in the depth of suffering is the motherly spirit and the Holy Spirit can become the motherly spirit. In fact, El Shaddai is a word that means the God of many breasts, of many nurturing breasts. And so God will be whatever you need him to be. And so God is the one who can say, I have become all things for all people in order to save all people. Not only did God become all things, he became whatever people needed him to be in order to save all. Pantas. So Tinas had to be stuck in here because they assumed, and this is where I'm actually, I'm actually gone crazy here. I'm out of my mind. So I'm going to return to sensible speech soon. And I'm just saying, I'm not going to make the whole case based on this. But it's intriguing to think outside of the box. It's intriguing to think outside of the sensible speech of a preacher. It's, in, it's in, intriguing. I think they put Tinas there instead of Pantas because they said, Paul's not going to save everybody. Of course he isn't. Paul didn't ever view himself as a man who was going to save all mankind. Just like John isn't a man through whom the whole world would believe in John 1.6. But both John and Paul perceived themselves as key players in a redemptive drama in which God was going to save all mankind. So, these translations render some as all. The Latin Vulgate has ut omnis facerem salvos. Wrong pronunciation, but right words. The Douay Rhymes translation, which is public domain, so you can quote it without getting in trouble. A very little trans, literal translation of the Latin Vulgate has 1 Corinthians 9.22. Paul says, to the weak I became weak that I might gain the weak. I became all things to all men that I might save all. Now, who became weak? It says Christ was crucified in weakness. He became weak. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Who is the one who can actually say, I have become all things to all human beings in order to save all human beings? Who other than the one who said I am that I am and I will be what I will be and I will become what I need to become for your salvation? I will be your salvation. What's the name Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. His name means salvation. God became our salvation in the incarnation 
of Jesus Christ, which led to his death by crucifixion and the dramatic validation of his, his crucifixion by a thing called resurrection, in which Jesus was the first fruits. And anybody that would understand what Paul's talking about there would understand that first fruits means that the first wave is holy, so the whole universal harvest is holy. So we have to rethink 1 Corinthians 7, 14 when it says that in a marriage where the children have an unbelieving father and a believing mother, that the believing mother sanctifies the unbelieving father and the children are sanctified by a believing person in the family. You say, well, that doesn't mean salvation. I'll tell you what it means. It means that there's a principle in action that the holiness of one can be for the others. When it comes to Jesus Christ personally, the Greek translations that I have immediate access to have tinas. So you're trucking along and saying, well, all these say some, so it must be some. Now, I wouldn't hang the doctrine of apokatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things, on this one 1 Corinthians 9.22. I wouldn't hang it all there. But... It's worth noting that several good manuscripts in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin have that I might save all. Universal salvation is here at least suggested, though Paul never implies that all will be saved by him or even through the instrumentality of him. But nevertheless, if pantas is the real translation of 1 Corinthians 9.22, once again, Paul may see himself as a key player in God's salvation of all of humanity inasmuch as God uses his mouth to announce the gospel which is the power of salvation the gospel of Christ who is the power of salvation moreover since Paul is a prophet Yahweh can speak through Paul can he not and say I have become all things to all people in order to save all people. So I think we can hear a faint echo here of God's self-identification when he confronted Moses. I am what I am, or I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. So my question is, does God himself, Yahweh, become? All things to all human beings in order to save all. After all, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he made him who knew no sin to be made sin. So that we could be made the righteousness of God or the fruit of a divine act of deliverance in him. By him. Second Corinthians five nineteen and twenty one. Paul can't actually. So, in other words, when we are made the righteousness of God in Him, it simply means that we become the fruit of the act of divine deliverance in Christ. Paul can't actually become all things to all humans to save all humans, but God can. And has become weak to save the weak. And he has become all things to all human beings in order to save all humans. But now it appears that I have gone out of my mind. So let me return to sensible speech and we'll continue this tomorrow. But just with a hint. Another parallel to the language used here in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, as A.T. Robertson said, is correct. The Greek employed by Paul in Colossians 3.11. And I'm going to mark this in my notes because I'm going to follow up on this tomorrow. Colossians 3.11. Speaking of the new humanity, Paul says, and I do believe Paul wrote Colossians. Some scholars don't. I do. Paul says, quote, in which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free person. But he says, but Christ is all and in all. Tapanta kai and 
Pason Christos. That means that right now, Christ comprises his body. But it also means that one day, the body of Christ will be all of humanity. This is the point that ecclesiology, an ecclesiology or a study of the church, in a 21st century Christian theology, must emphasize. Or the church is going to go backwards, theologically backwards. And when the church goes backwards, it's not too far to the Stone Age to the Dark Ages, to the Middle Ages. So, let's pray that we can have the grace to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now and forever. And Father, we do pray that as we close, and we thank you for the opportunity of presenting an offering to you of our substance, if we're motivated And if we're prepared and available to do so, so that these messages that are coming forth by the hundreds can be made available to those in need of them without cost to the recipients. And Father, may it be understood that when we have these offerings, they are entirely free volitional. They are not required or obligated. They are not the preacher handing out a hat to fill with money to pay for what he just gave. They are rather an expression of giving so that many can receive this message without cost at all. We thank you for this freedom. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.